0: Will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will uh, not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Father, as we look at your text tonight and we discuss things like how to pray, who are we praying to, and why we pray, Father, I pray that we would do so delicately. I pray truly as we look at this text, we would be reminded of just how hallowed your name is, how holy you are before your creation, how... Big of a God we serve and go to in prayer. Father, there's often notions of your character and notions of yourself that we neglect when going about our daily lives. I pray that would not be the case. And as this is, uh, displays a daily tendency, Lord, that we would have the same uh, in our prayer life, in our worship, in our walk, that we would go to you daily, Father. And we would pray to you as Christ has taught his disciples to pray. Lord, I pray that as, this, as we go through this text as a uh, youth group tonight, that you would be communicated, your son would be communicated, your fatherly love for your children, your possessive and jealous love for your children would be communicated. I pray that we would know you as the holy God that your scripture declares that you are. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, what he has done with his life, death, and resurrection. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read really sections at a time. Uh, While while you can kind of see a a, a broken up portion here, tonight we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, then we're going to look at 3 and 4, we're going to look at 5 through 8, and then we'll finish with 9 through 13. They're really broken up, and so it's really easy to separate them, but they also work very well together, which is why this is kind of the complete thought. And so uh, we'll see how, as we're talking at the beginning, it it leads into really verse 13 as we end with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to see how the entire text works together to communicate the same points about who God is. All right. So first, now, Jesus, I'm I'm, going to read it again. Y'all, there's there's not much I can do up here to communicate truths and communicate things for you to remember than the plain reading of Scripture. There's a reason that we cross-reference and we go from text to text. There's a reason we, I, I'm encouraging you to bring and open your Bibles. Your Bibles are true. Everything I say up here from the pulpit, whether emphatically or under my breath, is only true if it coexists and is accurate because of what this word says. My, my ability to persuade you to believe in Jesus Christ has nothing to do with his reality. We're we're up here, uh, we preach the the Bible at Covenant Church. I flip to the Bible because it is the standard of truth we have. And so tonight, as you do, if you do listen to what I say, please do so specifically when the text speaks. So, verses 1 and 2. Now Jesus was praying at a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Those are verses 1 and 2. Like I said, it's split up rather evenly. We're going to split it up as well. Um, As we note here, as we're beginning, there's a good reason why the disciples are asking Jesus to teach them to pray. I I really should have made reference to it, but I already had too many words, and so I didn't go back and and add this to my notes. But there's time after time, as Christ is working throughout his ministry, that the story either starts or it ends with his coming from prayer or his going to prayer. He makes it a constant theme in his life to be on his knees and to go before the Father and and to lay has heart out before Him in prayer, in subjection to, in obedience to the Father, and so the prayer life of Christ is one that we should seek to mimic. In that prayer is a good thing for us. We I've, I've talked before, but there's these things called the ordinary means of grace, which the Father has given to His Church that we may know Him in a very simple sense. There's three that are widely received as the ordinary means of grace. First is the reading of Scripture, which is what I just hinted on. Second is the prayer, that we can go directly to the Father with our prayer. And the third is actually the communion of saints, that we meet with one another and proclaim and worship the same God. Those are the ordinary means of uh, grace that the Father has given us. But as we see this from Christ, as he steps away, we understand why his disciples would be eager to learn from the master of prayer how to pray. Right? That makes sense. If if, if you're seeking to follow Jesus, if you're seeking to be a disciple, as we've talked about in here before, the the, the meaning of student, the meaning of follower, typically what you're seeking to do is to replicate the behavior you're following. Like we know of uh, social media influencers. Right? People make a lot of money on social media being influencers. And so what these people do is they give like basically thumbs up and thumbs down to social trends. And those social trends either continue to spread or stop spreading based on what these influencers tell us, right? There's, there's things that Kourtney Kardashian can say about a pair of leggings that will completely shred that company because her word means so much to so many people. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't wear leggings. I don't. I I can't name the five Kardashian sisters. I think there's five if I wanted to. but My point is she she has that hold over them because she has all these followers. Twitter, when you uh, choose to follow an account, you become a follower. Instagram, you have followers. Facebook, you have friends. It's different, but it's still the same thing. You're following these people, and largely that word follower is because how they dress, how they behave, what they endorse influences How you behave, what you think, what you would in turn endorse, even if you don't realize it, that is happening. The people you follow are changing aspects about how you think about things, but we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, but... These are his disciples. These are his followers. These are men who are seeking to be like Christ Jesus. And so they have gone to their uh, teacher, their master, and asked him, teach us to pray. Again, Christ would be considered the master of this, not only because of his divinity, but because he does it so much. He's dedicated to it, that it makes sense that they would go to him and ask him to pray. As you notice, one of the comments they make is, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. This is not weird in terms of um, having uh, religious leaders teach their disciples how to pray. The synagogues, the people who are learning after the priest, the priest would teach them how to pray. In pagan religions, they would teach the younger members how to pray. In terms of like Roman Catholicism, you learn how to uh, uh, go back and do church liturgy. They're teaching you how to pray. Okay, So this is actually something that we can still see in our culture today, but that was especially prevalent here in terms of religious teachers. They would ask them to teach them to pray. And so they're seeking Christ, and they're looking to be like Christ. So in the 90s, there was this trend where people would wear these bracelets and ask themselves, what would Jesus do? Or as I put on the uh, screen, and as Todd and uh, Charlie and myself and uh, maybe Takia and others in here would know, is that you had these nice little bracelets that said WWJD on them. And so the, the thought behind them is, before you do anything, you would ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And then you, having rectified your knowledge of Jesus with your current actions, would decide this is what Jesus would do in this situation, and that's what you would go and do. This generation's answer for that is HWLF, or he would love first. And this isn't an entirely wrong. Answer, uh, but it is also not entirely correct. Which to me, when something is not entirely correct and you're presenting his truth, it becomes incorrect. So I would challenge it. Christ always, in everything he did, sought to glorify the Father. Before anything else, his mission was an obedience and glorification of the Father. Now this does not contradict. He would love first, as we see in John three sixteen, other plainly that God sent His Son into the world because of His love for the world. And so there's this there's this part of There's this realm of thought where it actually works really well together, but I'm I'm just telling you, loving, how the culture sees loving and how those bracelets have largely pushed loving is not always on par with who Christ was as loving. Christ spoke much of hell. He spoke much against uh, leading societal norms. He spoke against the Pharisees and the tax collectors who were prominent in society. Christ did love. He glorified the Father, and he did so perfectly. One of the things he did that was most loving, that most people today would probably call incredibly hateful, is that he preached the gospel in the kingdom of heaven to them. He told them upon healing them, go and sin no more. He called out their sin and presented a way better by following him. He didn't just accept everything and shower everyone with affection. He preached the gospel. He let them know that the promised one, he, Christ, had finally come to fulfill the law. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not trying to get redundant here, and I hope it doesn't feel that way. But they're asking him to teach him to pray. Christ sets out to teach them. And I just referenced John 3.16, and I didn't even quote uh, m- most of it because that's, that's something that I assume you all know because of how much it's been just built into culture. John 3.16, for God to so love the world, he sent his only son, right? Everyone knows that verse. Arguably, the second most quoted aspect of Scripture is the Lord's Prayer, which is the section of uh, the text we're looking at tonight, except it's often from the Matthew 6 perspective. What's interesting is that if you read Matthew 6 and you read the context in, uh, before he actually gets the prayer point, he's telling them originally how not to pray. Don't heap up these empty phrases like the Gentiles and like the Pharisees. Don't just repeat these trites that you know and have memorized in the sake of prayer. Instead, and this is what he says in Matthew 6, pray then like this. Here, he's saying, uh, uh, when you pray, say. He he gives them this somewhat instruction. And so I I don't want you to read this as every time I pray, I need to pray these exact words. I want you to hear what he's saying and saying, how Christ is praying is how we should pray. And so we're going to look at the fundamentals of what he's saying so that our prayers aren't heaped up as empty phrases. Instead, we have the same reverence and same affection that Christ has for the Lord when we go to the Lord in prayer. Christ, in Matthew 6, 1, it starts uh, with, did I put that one in there? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So again, he's commenting on how not to pray, and he starts uh, the chapter with that verse. Uh, Heading off, prayer is not for the people around you, that they may see you as this pious, righteous, oh my gosh, look how he prays person. Prayer is meant for us to acknowledge who the Father is and to go to him on our behalf, to go to him, worshiping him and acknowledging our need for him. And that's really the the meat of the teaching that we're gonna get into. And so we're gonna go back to Matthew 6 at some point, but we don't wanna be there just yet. How the Father, I'm sorry, how Jesus starts tonight is Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. There's three rather big points made here and they address the two major questions that we're gonna ask. First, who do we pray to? And secondly, why do we pray? Of course, the entire passage is really an answer to the question, how do we pray? So first, we're going to look at why and to whom. So Christ instructs them, the first one, to whom we pray. Christ instructs them to say, Father, hallowed be your name. It is worth noting that in Matthew 6, he says, our Father. And so if you have any kind of discomfort with why they're not exactly the same, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one being that Christ likely, whatever he was teaching on prayer, used a very similar track because he was teaching them how to pray. Another aspect could be that it was in different parts of his ministry. Another point is that Matthew and Luke were writing the Gospels, yes, to give trustworthy accounts, but for different reasons. And so this was Luke's take on what was important, and this was Matthew's take. And if you notice, they're actually, I didn't put them side by side, but they're they're very, very similar, and they repeat each other. Matthew repeats all of Luke. Luke just doesn't have some of Matthew's text in there. And so as he starts, he's saying, uh, he gives us who we pray to. Who are we praying to? God the Father. So we're going to open up. God as our Father, and dive into it a little bit more. We know why Christ is calling him Father. We understand why Christ, who we know as the Son of God, would pray to the Father as God. But he isn't saying, this is how I pray, you are to pray differently. He says, pray like this, or this is how you should pray. And so he's telling us that when we go to pray, we talk to the Father as our Father, That's how we're talking to God. We're looking to him as father. We pray, when we pray, we do so as children of the father. We are not the outcast. We are not on the fringe. We're not outside the family of God. We are his children, and he is our father. The word here, and if you want to get into the Aramaic, it's different, but if you talk about where this is going to go in the Greek, the word is pater, where we get the term paternal. There's a relationship. There's a kinship. He is the father. We are the children. This is how we're instructed to think about him and pray to him. And so, as you think of the idea of family, this should hit a little bit more intensely. Fathers are expected to protect and to provide for their families. We're going to the Lord as father with an understanding that he will protect and provide for his children. Because he is our Father. The other aspect of it is, as, as we're, we're acknowledging an aspect of who he is as Father and who his role has been from the beginning, our Father created all things. Through him, by the Son and the Spirit, meaning the Godhead, all things were created. All things that, all, uh, that came into being, came into being because of the word of the Father. He is the literal life giver. Not only are you children because of his adoption through Christ Jesus, but he was the primary cause of creation, and so the creation of us. He is the watchmaker. That's how a lot of people want to talk about, and there's a philosophical argument for it. But when you think of the watch on my wrist, or you think about the shoes on your feet, they didn't just come into being. Something had to make them. Whether it was a machine or a human being, it made them. God the Father set all things into existence. From the dust of the earth, he created man and he breathed life into our lungs. We pray to him in the role of Father because we have been grafted into the kingdom, thankfully because of the obedience of Christ Jesus, and also as Father because he is the source of all life. He has a role as life, uh, the life giver and creator. And so we see that as he's talking, our Father, he's talking about the communal church and that all of us pray to him as Father, that he is the creator of life, and so he's a Father in that realm. Uh, and then that also, in terms of uh, the, the covenant he's made with his people, he's brought us into his family that we are his children uh, through the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Next, is, uh, Christ moves on from uh, our or Father. He says, hallowed be your name. Likely, the only... Uh, Real, uh, what's the word? Gosh, the the only real interaction you've had with the word "hallows" comes from all, all Hallows Eve, and that's not what we're thinking of. But as uh, Luke is saying here, and as Scripture says, "Hallowed be your name." What we're thinking of is revered, blessed, divine, and holy. His name is above all other names. That's what it means to be hallowed. It's meant. It means to be revered. It means to be regarded as holy. And so what's really unfortunate is that when we think about the term holy, we think about something that is set in church, but we really have no perception of what it is. When, uh, when they're saying to revere is holy, it's something that is, this, that is set apart in a different category all by itself. We will spend an eternity learning more and more of the holiness of God and never quite scratching the surface of just how holy he is. Okay? And so if you think about holiness in like a Mexican uh, restaurant setting, you have a, an, an item on the menu that says quesadillas, right? I know, look, look this is going to sound super weird. I'm not talking about God's holiness and relating it to a Mexican restaurant setting. I'm talking about the idea of holiness and rela- uh, relate to a re- Mexican restaurant setting. And so if you look at a Mexican restaurant menu and you look at the item on the menu, let's say, I don't know, 16. There's a mark that says quesadilla, right? And so then underneath the quesadilla, what you have is typically four to five options. And you have queso, and then you have beef, ground beef. And then you have chicken, and then you have steak, and then you have shrimp, right? Okay, and so there's this section of the menu where you have these four different kinds of quesadillas. And what you see as they continue down the menu is that they're increasing in price, right? Because there's a sense in which they are growing in worth. At most kids, the only thing they order at a Mexican restaurant is a cheese quesadilla because it's the easiest thing for their parents to get. It's, it doesn't make a big mess, and it's super simple. And some people, like my wife, continue to order a cheese quesadilla because they like it, and that's okay. But it's, it's the low ball, terrible form of the quesadilla in terms of worth, right? And then it moves on to ground beef, which is a little bit better than the queso, but it's still just ground beef. And then it moves on to chicken, which is more expensive than the ground beef, but not quite as expensive as the steak, which is a different form of beef, but just a nicer form of beef. And so, like, and bear with me, the holiness of the quesadilla is increasing as they are set apart from one another in worth. So, like, think of the financial system, okay? You also have parts on the menu that say things like... Uh, The grand quesadilla or La Fiesta quesadilla. And they're separated from this quesadilla because they're of so much more worth because of what's in them, right? I know this is silly. I'm talking about quesadillas and the idea of holiness. But track with me. I know. Napoleon Dynamite was a great movie. Anyway. So you're seeing that these quesadillas are separated because they are worth more. They're, to put it in a word holier than the other quesadillas okay they're separated from one another if you'll notice you never find on the menu an ahi tuna quesadilla and that's one of two reasons one that's disgusting but secondly because the restaurants that have cheese and beef and bean and uh, ground beef quesadillas don't have ahi tuna on the menu because ahi tuna is a food that is much more expensive and would be considered holier this other food and so if you wanted to go get ahi tuna what you'd have to do is go to more of a three dollar sign restaurant like river or like uh evangeline's and pay more money for something that is considered to be in better worth okay this is the idea of holy as we're seeing it in very pragmatic and simple terms in our lives quesadillas grow in value and become better in our minds i know some of you in here are like look you can talk all you want to about these quesadillas i'm still gonna order the cheese one every time That's okay. That's not the point. The point is we understand that there's a system of comparisons where we regard some things as okay and some things as way, way better. If I was going to offer any of you like a a 1999 red Oldsmobile with 300,000 miles, and then on the other hand, I was going to offer you a cherry red Ferrari, there's no... Comparison in your mind that you would always choose the Ferrari because it is worth so much more than the Oldsmobile. Okay? That this, again, this idea of holy. And so now, to, to, to bring it all back and, 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 and really, really try to avoid to make any of this heretical. God is so separated in holiness and is so hallowed and... Uh, he would never be found at a menu or an auto lot because his holiness supersedes anything that we can even imagine in terms of putting worth behind it. And so what I said, we will spend all of eternity learning of the holiness of God and never quite grasping what it is. It's because his holiness is so intensified that not only in his worth is he separated from creation, we don't have a category where we can accurately conceptualize just how good just how infinite, just how grand of a God is that the Bible speaks about. He's holy, holy, holy. They say that to the third degree to so remove him in terms of worth because nothing we say can ever accurately caption who he is. That's how grand this God is. That's how grand God is. So, what we're seeing here, his perfection and worth. Is it such a degree that we're acknowledging that when we go to him in prayer? People may say things like God is bigger than the boogeyman. I know VeggieTales did. They say things like he will hold the whole world in his hands. That he may see more than Santa Claus. But none of these things truly capture the infinite aspect of his existence as it relates to us and the rest of creation. He is the creator of all things. He is holy before all things. He is God, and his name is to be revered and hallowed. So who are we praying to? We're praying to our Father, who is the supreme above all things. We pray to him because he is our Father and also because he is supreme over all things. I know that was a silly example in terms of starting with quesadillas, moving to cars and working my way up. But I, I want you all to try to conceptualize this idea of a holy God that we're speaking of. We are so worthless to him and he has chosen to love and pursue us in, in regards to him. We are not worthless to him. That was a mis, mistaken point. So Christ then says, your kingdom come. That's how he ends verse two. And the reason for this has one of two meanings, but I, w- I would like to say it has both meanings. First... And we can look at it as the coming of Christ, right? So Christ has been coming. And he's been proclaiming the kingdom. He's come. He's been preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. And this has been his message since his ministry started. We see this over and over again in Luke. So Luke 4.43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We see again in Luke 6.20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We see in Luke 7, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. We see again in Luke 8, soon after, he went out through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke 10, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And so we're seeing that lining up with Jesus' ministry is this idea that the kingdom of God has come. What he is proclaiming is that God is there in the flesh and it is himself Christ Jesus. He's proclaiming and he's preaching about himself. And so that's option A, which is part of it. Christ has come. We're, we're, We're proclaiming that in adoration. But secondly... And this is where if we we need to cheat with Matthew 6 a little bit, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as Luke says here, your kingdom come, we see that this prayer is about God's will being done. Prior to getting into our pleas, into our requests and our needs, as the rest of the prayer is going to do, we're addressing that God's will is what is best for our lives, and we are submitting ourselves to it. Prior to telling him our need for bread, prior to telling him our spiritual needs, prior to telling him our need for being led out of temptation, we're acknowledging, Father, your will be done. That is where I'm submitting myself. Your will is good for me, and I want it. We're submitting to whatever his will is, and we are praying according to the will of the Father. To put things immediately in perspective as we look at the first three points Christ has made, we've acknowledged God as our Father, we've acknowledged Him as holy and set apart, and now we are praying that we would be living, operating, and pursuing uh, His will for our lives. This reality helps prepare us for how we pray for our needs, our wants, and our desire. We must, in all things, subject ourselves to the will of the Father, but get this also, We get to entrust ourselves to the will of the Father because we know he cares for us. In 1 Peter 5, 6, as Peter is writing warning, he says to the the church, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is true of God the Father. We, we know that He is a trustworthy and worthy Father because of how He has dealt bountifully with us. And so as we pray to Him, we're acknowledging this, and then we're praying that His will would continue within our lives, and that our steps would be in accordance to His will, because it is best for us. Now look, I don't know all of y'all's experiences with your fathers. I don't. And so when I am talking about this, this, this beloved, this lovely, this gracious father figure who is God Almighty, it, it, it may not be recognizable to you in terms of the, the language I'm, I'm, I'm putting around it. But what I'm telling you is that God, our father, is not like God, your father, or God, my father, in terms of an earthly setting. He always looks out for. He always cares for. And once and forever, he has dealt with our needs with Christ Jesus. He has forever provided what we ultimately need, which is reconciliation that we may be adopted into the kingdom and spend eternity with him. We don't have to begrudgingly and frustratingly submit ourselves to the will of God. We get to entrust ourselves to the will of God because we know that he loves us. Verse 3, this is the transition part of the prayer moves into more of things that we need, the spiritual and physical desires. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. There are several different points that are going on. We're going to see our physical needs uh, being met, our spiritual needs, and then thirdly, I'm calling it our spiritual protection. So let's look a little bit further. With physical needs, we see... Give us this day our daily bread. Christ starts by asking for these physical needs. And I'm sure we can all relate to the need for food and sustenance. Likely all of you in here have had something to eat today or something to drink. And then it's that exact physical need that he is praying for here. But notice he's not asking for a fridge to be full or for the pantry to be stacked. Instead, he's asking that his daily needs would be met. He's telling us to pray for our daily needs. That we would look to God to provide for us today. This is significant because it's going back to being in subjection of the Father. It's acknowledging that daily we need the Father's provision. Daily we need his help in, in putting food on the table. Solomon speaks to this very clearly, I think, in Proverbs thirty-seven nine, seven 7 through 9. He says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord my God. So Solomon is making the point that as he's asking these things from the father before he dies, he doesn't want an abundance of uh, sustenance and food, and he doesn't want a lacking of sustenance and food. All he's asking is that the Lord would provide for him as he seems fit to fill his needs. It is so easy when we have an abundance of things to forget the God who gives them. Consider what it means when, we, when I say things like the Father sustains you. The air in your lungs is there because he put it there. The blood in your body circulates because he allows it to, because he wills it to. The food on the table, and you can ask any good farmer about this, he gave the sun, he gave the nourishment of the plant, and he brought the rain to the crop. Always, in every aspect of our physical self, whether it's the ear in our lungs or the food on the table, we are reliant on, the, on God to be constantly working for our continuance as a human being. Without the will of the Father intricately intervening with what we need, we will not continue. As, as uh, Paul talks about the nature of Christ Jesus, that all things are held together according to his will. That is actively true about our lives on this earth. Each day we are reliant on him and each day we are to tell him father please we are to ask of him father please give us our daily bread what good is the ability to labor if there is no chore to be done and what good is the property that we may accrue if we have no wheat or nothing to grow any food we ask for our daily bread because we are daily dependent on the mercy and the grace of our father to provide them our physical needs are handled because he does so and this reality is far greater than we deserve. <clears throat> Sorry. So this prayer helps us to realign ourselves under the will of the Father and according to his will for us. So secondly, Christ brings up the spiritual needs we have of the Father. And forgive us our sins. We must be forgiven. Every action we have, whether we realize it or not, whether we're intentionally having it this way or not, is in rebellion to the Father. This aspect of the prayer is meant to lead us, in rep- rep- lead us to repentance. And this is where, again, we are acknowledging the need of our Father to grant right standing with Him, to continue us. And I'm going to put something here plainly. I put it on the screen. Just by breathing air into your lungs you are acting in rebellion of God. It's not because you have intended that or because you've thought out, I want to act in rebellion of God. It's because we are by nature children of wrath, stained with the sin of Adam, and that we cannot do anything, whether it be good intentioned, mundane, or wicked advised, we cannot do anything that would be good for the father. All of it is against the father. This is where Christ as mediator, or a mediator somebody who takes up on someone else's behalf, is so important. We pray for our forgiveness in Christ's righteousness because of who he is and what he has done has granted us forgiveness and right standing with God that he accepts our prayers as good intention and as good work. I do wanna point out, You aren't justified by your prayer, but your prayer is a marker of the justification that has been done. We pray for forgiveness on behalf of the Father because we are in need of it. It's meant to lead us in repentance, knowing that we are not holy, we are not good, and we're in need of the Father. Lastly, he continues here, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This is not as though we are forgiving their sins or even really a financial burden as we typically think of the word debt. It's more of, since we have been forgiven much, we forgive much, which is where Luke 747 uh, highlighted prior in the Gospel of Luke. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. When we survey, when we look to the works of the cross, we When we understand what Christ has done for us, it should empower us to forgive. Some of you may ask why that makes us want to forgive, why that lets us let go of the debts of others against us. It's because we have received an inexhaustible amount of mercy and grace. We were condemned, we were dead, we were lost, we were cast off, we were rejected, and God's love for us has brought us back to him. We have good standing with God the Father. And so if if you imagine owing someone money, and for for the sake of the problem, we'll call this man Jesus, and you have to go to the bank to take out a loan to pay this person back, and you get to the bank and the teller says, okay, uh, what can I do for you? And you say, look, uh, I owe uh, Jesus a very small sum of a million dollars, and I need you to write me a loan that I can pay for that. When the teller goes to check your amount and determine whether or not you're in good standing and how much they can actually lend to you to begin paying this loan back, they say to you, "Uh, sir, you you have no need of a loan. There's a, a billion dollars in your checking account that you could easily pull from to pay off whatever debt you owe this man. And you go to inquire further and you find out that the person whom you owed the debt to actually paid the debt on your behalf. He's forgiven you and has paid you more than you were ever owed or more than you ever owed. You realize at once that your debt has been squared and you now have more money than you know what to do with. And so that's looking at sin to a financial place, but, but that's where we are. And because Christ has so paid back your debt and made you richer in grace and mercy than you could ever think possible, the person in your life who owed you $5 for that time you needed to spot him at a diner is no longer on your horizons. That, that debt is of no value to you because you have more money than you know what to do with. You've been treated so kindly on behalf of the Father and at the, bidding, and at the will of uh, himself and, he and Christ whom he sent that you're not worried about the debt that other people owe you. We forgive him, uh, we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We have no need to remember someone's misdeeds against us for we were in far worse shape And it has been forgiven us, and so we forgive them. And so the last part of this prayer, where Christ is instructing them in Luke, is lead us not into temptation. Quickly, this is not meant to suggest that the Father tempts us. It's not that he often leads us into temptation, but it's more... Uh, James, James actually deals with this idea in chapter 1, 12-14. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And so the point that is being made here by Christ is not in the sense that, God, you often tempt me, please stop tempting me. What we're actually saying is, Father, I am sinfully wicked. Often in my steps, in my days, in my life, I go to places I should not be, and I want to go to those places because of the sinner that I am. And so what we're actually saying is we've acknowledged our need for the Father. We've acknowledged that we need him in our daily life, for our daily bread, and to forgive us of our sins. What we're also saying is, please, Lord, be active in my life and keep me from sin. Keep me from the temptations of the flesh. Keep me from myself. And so you'll see one of my favorite uh, illustrated points. It's from a book called The Valley of Vision. That's a bunch of prayers is uh, the man is talking about and lamenting with these sinful tendencies he has and he labels the enemy at the, uh, the at the end and he says the enemy is within the gates and the point he's making is my sinful ways are what are causing me to stumble it's not the devil it's not demons it's my sinful tendencies if you notice, and I should have made this comparison as well, Paul points out, and I'm sorry, Peter points out in 1 Peter 5, as he's saying, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. And then he says, resist the devil. And he talks about how the devil will flee from you. And when Paul talks about sexual sin in 1 Corinthians, what he says is, run, flee. Because our sinful desires are enough to entangle us and keep us from the Father. We need nothing else in our life to distract us from his goodness and to distract us from his mercy and grace. The point here is that we are sinful, that we are wicked, and we need the Father's help to lead us away from temptation. Now, there are times in which the Lord would test you, but not to get you to sin, but as a measure of your faith that you may learn to trust in him and stand with him. It's not to be the prayer that we pray daily in terms of our recording to the Father, that he would provide for our needs and that he would keep us from temptation. Without the Lord actively in our life, we would return to our vomit. This prayer is a a very simple means in terms of acknowledging who the Lord is in our life. We are meager, weak beings that started our history on earth as coming from dust and being made into the image of God. I want you to realize that. You were nothing. Everything that you are, your muscles, your hair, whatever thing that you think is so proud about your being has been given to you by the Father. You didn't choose what you have. But what we're acknowledging is that the sustenance... The continuance, everything about us is from the Father, and we are to look at him as the Holy of Holies, who blesses his children, who loves his children, who shows kindness to his children, and ask that he would provide for our needs. To ask that day in and day out, he would be providing for our physical needs, our mental needs, our spiritual needs, and quite literally, our an ability to become alive. As we see the forgiveness of sins, that we would reject our sinful nature and live a life for Christ Jesus. And so now, and Todd talked about this a little bit last week in terms of temptation, I'm sorry, in terms of sanctification. Now, as we actively live, we're praying for his help that we may continue living for him, that he would sustain us day by day. I remember a couple years ago, this is where we're going to end. A couple years ago, I was a part of a study in Birmingham by a guy named Larry Alex Taunton. Larry Alex Taunton uh, fell into some sexual sin. He was the leader of a ministry, and by doing so, the ministry essentially shut down. And I was shook by this. I had been underneath the guy for probably two years learning apologetics. And in that time period, I learned a lot. It helped me ask the right questions in terms of my faith, and when other people challenged me, kind of pick it apart and realize what they were actually trying to do. But when he fell into sexual sin, I remember somewhat being taken aback by it, and Somewhat being hurt by it, this is a man who I looked up to, who I had confidence in, who had so blatantly failed. And I was talking to my buddy Dalton about it one day, and he was engaged to be married to his now wife, Becca, and they were talking about the effect that Leary's failed marriage would have on their lives. And uh, Becca was scared about it. She was engaged. She said, golly, this is, this, is, this is terrifying. Like this kind of thing can happen to a couple that I thought was so strong. And now their, their world has just been rocked by infidelity. What do I do? Like, how do we approach this in terms of our marriage? And I remember Dalton, and this is, I, I, I do think this is a grace of marker in his life, but also it has helped me in my marriage and in my life. Dalton looked at Becca and said, it is only by the grace of God that we will not be there in 10 years. And I remember first being like, "What are you talking about? There's some responsibility here." That and and then immediately, there's just this reminder of, "No, there's not. We are sinfully wicked, and we often look at other people in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. But how many times have you tried not to do something and end up doing the very thing you hate, and you don't understand why? We're flawed in our nature." And so what we're acknowledging here as we're going to the Father and praising Him for His holiness is that we need Him in every aspect of His life, our life. We need His grace. We need His mercy. We need His love. And we need His providence. We need Him, as, as verse 4 ends, to lead us from temptation. To keep us not only from the evil one. Not only from those who would want to hurt us. But to keep us from ourselves that we may live for him. My hope is that you would find this freedom in Christ Jesus, that you would understand the work that has occurred at the cross. You would understand that Christ Jesus has once and forever saved men and reconciled them to his Father. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we have this very short time in small groups, Lord, that, that you would be with us. I pray that your glory be sought and that your name would be known. Father, I pray that these young men and women would know just how much they're in need of you. They would know how much they're dependent on you. I thank you for Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.